you can think of the blockchain and Bitcoin as just this list of accounts and account balances. You know, it's two columns, right? Goes all the way down, and all of the money you know that exists is on that sheet in those two columns, and everybody. Um, in the Bitcoin network has a copy of that sheet. This is Jordan Gall, a senior communications associate living in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and you're listening to the Vance Crow podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today's interview is with my good friend, Reed Timcio. He is a fascinating character that I met at a Bitcoin meetup many, many years ago. You know, you go to things that you don't know who you're going to meet or what's going to happen. And for me, meeting people that I didn't anticipate has been one of the things that's brought so much richness to my life. And I have for well over a year been um, poking and pestering Reed to come on the podcast. He finally agreed to it. And we decided that we would talk about cryptocurrencies. What you will find out is that Reed is an exceptional storyteller and really understands the back end of things like Bitcoin and Ethereum on a level that you'd have to to be able to explain it to other people. So we have a really deep conversation and I think you'll really enjoy it. And if you wait all the way to the end, you will hear Reed's storytelling ability when he talks about the time when it became illegal for US citizens to own gold. That should give you an idea of just how great of a storyteller Reed is. I'm really glad you're here. And if you like meeting people like Reed, you might find it interesting to join the Articulate Ventures Network. This is a group that is growing. We are um, definitely more than I ever thought we could be. People get in there. It's a uh, confidential group where you can share thoughts and ideas, practice uh, exploring concepts that you're not so familiar with. So like today, we are going to hold a speaking gym where people show up and they get a chance to practice a speech and then get feedback from their peers and from myself. And then we do um, an experience where we ask questions that you don't anticipate, and then you get to try and answer a question and then get feedback on how did you do by answering this question off the cuff. These experiences, along with the book club and movie night, are all things that the community has decided they want to do. And so I am helping facilitate that. And if you're interested in joining, go to network.articulate.ventures. That's network.articulate.ventures and uh, sign up to become a member of this group. All right, without further ado, here we're going to my man, Reed. Reed Timzio, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? You are one of the most interesting characters I've met in my entire life. We met, I don't know how many years ago, seven years ago or so at a Bitcoin meetup. And um, while many, many other people have fallen away because the space has become complex, it's not new and fresh and um, exciting in the news anymore, you have hung with it and have become a financial innovator of sorts. So I thought I would have you come on and give the best shake on uh, cryptographic currencies that, uh, that, that I can do. So welcome to the podcast, man. I'm really excited to talk with you. I appreciate that, fans. I'm happy to be here. So um, you're right now teaching a course at the University of South Carolina on financial innovation. How in the world did that come about? And what is it that you teach kids about financial innovation? <laughs> well, uh, so that's actually an interesting question, the story of kind of where it came from. And it actually goes back to when we met Vance, um, you know, 2013. This is Bitcoins at like a couple hundred bucks. This is before it exploded the first time. And um, I was working in St. Louis at Wells Fargo Advisors. 
and um, in, in the headquarters. And so I was an intro financial advisor and one of my clients that I was just kind of helping with his bond portfolio here and there um, was an executive um, at the firm. And so he became you know, a good friend of mine and kind of my mentor. And um, we were talking and while Bitcoin is in the headlines and it's like a popular thing, um, and he happened to be the, the chief credit and risk officer. And so he says, Reed, you know, why don't you, you know, do the best you can and you know, do some research and give me a report on you know, what is the risk you know, that Bitcoin poses to our business, right? And so that was when I you know, first aimed my brain you know, at Bitcoin in a big way because you know, I had not only as my client, but you know, this, this chief um, officer at a you know, big company, big bank, you know, this is a big opportunity for me. So, you know, I tried really hard and poured through, you know, document after document after document until, you know, I could teach it, right? Because you don't understand it until you can teach it. And so that's where it all began. Um, and so years and years later, that mentor of mine, Dr. Jimmy Lenz, um, he's actually uh, started this course um, at the University of South Carolina. He has his DBA. Um, so he, he teaches uh, business school at the graduate level, and I kind of helped him, you know, since we have always had this, you know, relationship where, you know, we talk about the technology and we kind of learned about it together, um, you know, we've kind of developed a lot of the courses and a lot of the, you know, assignments together along the way. So. So what do you think, one of the biggest challenges I have with Bitcoin, and I can remember when this was first getting started, that people would just kind of roll their eyes and talk about it as fake money or all of the complaints that people have. But now that you've been teaching it, what do you think is the biggest hurdle to people getting this kind of fascination or sense of awe? Because I think that's what really pulls people through. It is a complicated subject, but when you get to some level, some like peak on the understanding of crypto, then all of a sudden it's worth it to do the, the work to, to get through and understand it on a deeper level. But what's that big hurdle that people can't seem to get over? No, so this is really hard to describe what I'm, what I'm going to try and describe, but this is like kind of how I thought about it when I, when I first did it. You know, if you're a normal person and you, and you read an article about something, you know, then you get to the technical part, right? And, you know, I was reading it pretty clearly and I get to the technical part and I'm not really familiar with how this works, but I kind of get it because like I can see the context that it's in. So I just kind of read over that part and don't really understand. Right. Um, and I feel like everybody does that. And, you know, the way that you understand hard technical things is you have to read through that like 10 times, you know, before you really get it. And I think what happens with Bitcoin is that most people think about it pretty hard, they get to the technical point, um, and then they kind of, they either do one of two things. They either say, oh, this is so complicated, you know, this is so hard and over my head, you know, if I can't, this must be really smart, right? And you know, I, I'm not gonna take the time to understand how it works, but it's really smart, I trust it, right? That's not me, right? I'm the other guy, I'm the guy who says, I don't understand. Why can't I understand this? I'm going to keep reading. It. Why doesn't, why can't I understand why this makes sense, right? Until I keep reading it and keep reading it. And so what makes me confident about Bitcoin is that, you know, I, I have done all the due diligence. I've read through all the stuff and, you know, I don't trust that guy when he says, you know, it's too hard for you to understand. Trust me. I don't trust him, right? Because it really isn't hard to understand. Um, and if somebody's trying to scare you and tell you, you can't understand it. It's too technical. They're doing something. They're hiding the ball somewhere. They're lying to you. You know, they're taking advantage of, of your credulity. 
Um, and you know, that is a lot of the cryptocurrency space is people being taken advantage of who, who may not understand what they're investing in. <laughs> yeah, for me, it was, uh, you know, I was kind of along for the interest and kind of the intrigue about it. And I remember sitting with our mutual friend, Rob Long, who goes by Plantimals on Twitter and having him, um, I was like, all right, give it to me one more time. <laughs> and, he, and he gave this explanation where I started to understand how the, these words that you hear, blockchain and wallet and like how, how uh, encryption works, all of a sudden there was like a unifying force where I was like, oh, I have enough of it that I can understand it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then that sent me on a wild path for I would say a couple of years investing in it. And, and I'm like a hardcore hodler, like everything I've ever bought in Bitcoin, <laughs> I, just, I just hang on to. But for people that are sitting there right now, thinking like, all right, give it to me one more time. What is your, you know, generalized un description of Bitcoin so that people can get on the train and follow you into the deeper parts? Yeah, I mean, the, the very, very high level, easiest, if someone who doesn't know anything about it, right, is that, you know, the Bitcoin and the blockchain are, are just a, a ledger in the sense that, um, now this isn't right at all, but it's right enough um, that, you can think of the blockchain and Bitcoin as just this list of accounts and account balances. You know, it's two columns, right? It goes all the way down and all of the money, you know, that exists, it's on that sheet in those two columns. And everybody um, in the Bitcoin network has a copy of that sheet, you know, so they all know who owns what. And whenever somebody wants to spend Bitcoin, they, they transfer from, you know, they erase out one little column and they write it in a different little column and, and, and that's it. That's how it works, right? The real magic, you know, that's simple, right? The question is how, right? Like, like that is like the what is very simple, right? And then you say, well, well, but how, right? And then we need to start going into the tech and, you know, and I think that, what people find is the more they learn about it, it's that um, it's not so clear that, you know, that this, that this works the way they say it does. You know, it's, there's a little bit more to it than, than you might, than you might, might expect. Yeah. You have this sort of Dunning-Kruger effect where when you first start getting on, you're like, yes, I, I'm, I have this spike in my confidence on what I know. And mm. eventually you hit a point where the more you learn, the more you're like, oh my God, I don't understand this. And you kind of plummet all the way down, just like any PhD student trying to study anything, <laughs> right? You start wondering like, will I ever hit the bottom? So talk about the, the how and why this has been a big enough how to, to make you be, you know, as, as integrated into the crypto world as you are. Yeah. So I guess the, I think the simplest way to explain it is, is how I explained it back in 2013 to my mentor. Right. Um, because that was, you know, it was brand new at the time. And you know, it, that, that's uh, how most people, I guess, thought about it is that you, you think about the new system, something like a Bitcoin versus uh, what we used to use or what most people use, which would be debit and credit cards. Right. Then you got your name on it. You got a number on it. You swipe the thing at the point of sale um, to buy something. And what used to happen or what still happens at the point of sale is that you know, there, there's not like a little bank inside the card reader machine, you know, it's, um, it sends a message uh, on uh, through the internet or through the phone lines or, you know, whatever they, whatever they got, it sends a message to the bank and says, hey, bank, 
does this guy have the money? You know, does he have the money he says he has? Um, and the bank says yes or no, and then it sends that message back. And that's what takes like three or four or five seconds while you're swiping your card is you're waiting for that message to go, come back, takes a couple of seconds, you've been approved, and then, you know, you get to buy the thing and walk away. Um, and so, like, what, what made that happen? Why did that work, right? It works because JP Morgan or, you know, any bank, let's say it's JP Morgan Chase, um, you know, big bank, my bank, um, has this list. Right, where they have all their clients and they have all their money that their clients, you know, own and all the outstanding checks that haven't settled yet that, you know, their clients have written that maybe, you know, they can't spend and, you know, they have all that. Right. And so what ends up happening is that basically I'm trusting JP Morgan, right, to, to get it right. Right. I'm trusting this bank to have gotten it right. And they're regulated by the federal, you know. And so, Bitcoin, the way, the way that would work um, is let's, let's say that JP Morgan isn't, isn't even here anymore, right? That point of sale device that you swipe your card into, let's pretend like every device has a total list of all the money owned by everybody. Every single point of sale device everywhere has, has this list, right? You, you wouldn't need to send a message to anybody. When you're, when you're checking out, you know, I don't have to check with JP Morgan to see if you've got money. You know, there's no three seconds, right? It just checks the list and sees that you have the money and boom, right? So who do I have to trust, right? I don't trust JP Morgan, but I am trusting this list. And that's the question. Well, then why should I trust the list? And then that's where you get into, okay, well, I need to get into computer science and the hashing and the encryption and all the things that, you know, make it so that I can trust this list. And my point is the real, my thesis, right, is that um, you, you, to, before you had to trust JP Morgan, um, you, you're not trusting anyone like that anymore, but you are trusting something, right? And, and that's the real thing that I think people don't understand about Bitcoin is that, a lot of people, they get enamored with it. They think, I don't have to trust anyone anymore. You know, this is trustless currency. And really, you know, it's not that you don't have to trust the banks anymore. It's just that you're trusting someone else, right? Now I'm trusting these miners who are processing transactions and doing these things. You know, so I've moved my trust from the banks to the miners. Is that better? Like, <laughs> I don't know, Vance. So, I mean, then what is the use case? Why then, if you have this uh, system where it's a trust of a different thing, it's not JP Morgan or Wells or any of those, and now it's trusting miners, wh why even begin down this path, do you think? Um, why begin down, like, the Bitcoin path, you mean? Yeah, I mean, like, why would anybody, like, what, what is the use case that makes it so you have this gigantic system and yeah. people are pouring millions well, or billions of dollars into it? Absolutely. So here's the, um, here's my analogy for this. So everybody knows about mortgage backed securities causing the financial crisis, right? And so bear with me for a second. This is going to be a little bit of an example here. But the point is, is that I can, you know, a mortgage backed security is say like, let's say a hundred mortgages and I pool into one product and then I slice and dice that product. And I say, out of these hundred mortgages, I make five different products. I make an A, a B, a C, a D, and an E, right? And um, each of these products has a different risk, right? And so they have different prices. And basically that's, that's way, one way I can do it is I can take an asset, like a mortgage, and I can slice and dice it and give some to this guy and some to that guy. 
It's kind of the same thing we do with companies, right? I have a company that has all these assets. It's either financed by debt or it's financed by stockholders, by equity, right? It's that um, the idea is that the trust, um, no matter what you do, like you can, or, or say when, in the mortgage-backed security, the risk, right? Slicing and dicing them in A, B, C, and D, and E isn't going to change the underlying risk of the mortgages. Right? It shouldn't matter how it's sliced and diced, shouldn't affect the quality of the mortgages. And so that's like a fundamental thing in finance. We talk about how risk is fundamental. You can't get rid of it, right? All you can do is reallocate it, right? And so my th argument and theory about Bitcoin is that trust is the same way. It's that you, know, you cannot get rid of trust, right? You need to have trust. The question is, who are you going to trust? Who will you allocate your trust to, right? And so I can specifically say, J.P. Morgan Chase, I'm not going to trust you. I'm only going to trust people, you know, these miners who have done these very specific things, right? And so it's the same type of thing. It's that, you know, so you why like Bitcoin, it's, it's, right? Yeah, it's why kind of a Bitcoin? challenge, like a challenge on the uh, the fractional reserve banking, right? Where where you know a bank has a certain amount of money but then if you if if you put money into that bank and then that bank says okay we're going to take your money and say that Vance has $100 in this account but then we're going to take 80 of those dollars and we're going to loan them out to somebody and most of that money that they loan out to stays at the bank the person mm -hmm. um takes that loan and they put it back in the bank so now they're counting $180 are on their bank sheet and you can just go on and on and mm -hmm. on and the difference then between the banking system that you're describing and blockchain is when you use, a, a, we'll just say Bitcoin, you are not accepting the risk of uh, fractional reserve banking. So it's not that you're able to take those out. Somebody has to have that money in a wallet for it to exchange, as opposed to the, the regular banking system where somehow they've magically made $80 in the fractional re reserve yeah. banking. It's... um. I, I mean, that's something that definitely needs to be talked about the difference, say, between those, those two systems. But the, I think the simplest, like, you know, elevator speech way of saying it um, is that, you know, say with financial products, when I slice and dice something into A, B, C, D, and E, the A is like a really not very risky, right? The E is like extremely risky. You, you, it yields 10 or 15%. The A is yielding 1%, right? And so the type of person who wants to take that risk who only, you know, who, you know, in a retiree, right, who doesn't want to have a lot of volatility in their holdings, right, they're going to take the A. Um, and so the beauty of slicing and dicing, this securitization, is that I'm allowed to take the risk and give it to someone who wants to bear it, right, someone who wants the risk, who, you know, is appropriate for it. The analogy then with trust is I'm taking the trust and giving it to someone who deserves it, <laughs> right, like someone who's just trustworthy, right, instead of, you know, just whoever's regulated by the government, right? And so it's more of like a community voting reputation, you know, process with, with crypto. Is who, who should we trust, not who do we trust? So as you've gone deeper into this rabbit hole, um, you know, there's people that are behind Bitcoin, right? They're the ones that wrote the code. They're the ones that now uh, keep that code up and keep it updated. W like, what do you know about those people now that you've <laughs> I'm so happy. time? I'm so happy you asked that question. Um, man, 
this is one of the like things that I'll bring up in my, my classes sometimes. And I, I try not to talk too much on it because really I just want to point out how strange it is. And then, you know, silence, you know, let that sink in for a second. So here it is, you know, the person or persons who created Bitcoin, right? They have a million Bitcoins, about a million Bitcoins. A Bitcoin costs about $10,000, maybe more. I haven't checked today. It might even be 11 or 12 today, right? But that means that the person who created Bitcoin has about $10 billion worth of value. And they've never touched it, ever. Wow. Right? Wow. 11, right, 11 years now, Bitcoin has existed. And whoever created it, who has not been unmasked, there is one guy who says that he's, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, but you know, and I don't want to take political sides, you know, because I don't know. I don't want to get sued by him. But, you know, a lot of people think that he's, he's a scammer and that, you know, he hasn't proved it yet because theoretically, you know, how would you prove that you're Satoshi Nakamoto? It would seem that, you know, you should be able to move that $10 billion. You should, you should be able to move some of it, you know, have and to sign a transaction that anyone else can see on the blockchain, can see that it was moved. Well, it's never happened, right? And so why, how can that be? And especially... Why would someone go and buy a Bitcoin, you know, when $10 billion worth of Bitcoin at any moment could be sold, you know, on, on the exchange? You know, nobody knows. It's a very risky proposition. And so I don't know if your listeners are familiar with um, uh, the foundation. No, Is no. That- I mean, like I could... I- I've been so far out of it. Once I got it, once I was like, all right, this is an investment. We're calling it a wild card investment. It's, I'm holding, I'm just going to leave it there. Then I have walked away and and know very, very little about the current state. I know for a while there was tumultuous politics. There were people going to jail. There was all craziness. So I don't know anything at all about who's running it now. Yeah, I was just going to, the foundation, I'm not referring to like a foundation. I'm the foundation, the book. Oh um, yeah, Isaac Asimov. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, we, I have a book club, and we read Asimov. Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, well, Rob Long, your 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 guy you've had in your podcast, he actually recommended the book to me, and and he was right. I loved it. Um, and see, I'm still talking about it, right? But in in the foundation, there's this uh, character, you know, or or there's this uh, the second foundation who are able to like hack people's brains and kind of, you know, find out what, what are their motivations and the things that they, they think of. And just in that context, I'm just trying to imagine the psychology of this person, Satoshi Nakamoto, you know, so they haven't spent any of their $10 billion, right? So like physical wealth is meaningless to this person, right? So wow, already this is like a philosopher king, you know, whoever this is, like they, you know, they're well, they don't care. But the other thing is they don't care about glory either. You know, nobody knows who they are. Like, it's one thing if you don't want to spend any of your Bitcoins because you think that, you know, people would be scared, like you have too many of them, you don't want to risk it. But what kind of man, a person, you know, woman, anybody, you know, their ego, you know, you created Bitcoin and you don't need everyone to know that. Like, you know, who is this person? Like, <laughs> I mean, it defies reason. And in fact, yeah. like in many ways, it, it, the, the even more surprising thing is, let's imagine it's not a person. Let's imagine it's five people. 
Think about how much harder it would be to keep five people's egos in check. And like, <laughs> oh, yeah. even if you signed a contract, even if they never told a single person that let that secret leak out, like it's, it, 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 I can't think of any other example. It'd be like going and building the pyramids and then well, not taking credit for it. So I should mention, you know, cause I don't want anything to get blown out of proportion is that it's, you know, there's a possibility that this guy, Craig Wright, is actually is you know satoshi i mean there's this this guy named hal finney um who um you know what one of the denominations of bitcoin is named after him a finney is you know a certain amount of decimal points um he uh, is like the first the second uh developer to work with satoshi and so he's like the guy to talk to him and so he died a couple years ago and it's the lawsuits with craig wright are between or from his estate um or no, this isn't from Alphany. I'm being confused. That's Ira Kleiman. Now I'm now I'm getting really confused. Um, my, anyway, all I wanted to say is that just admit, maybe, maybe Satoshi is Craig Wright and he lost the keys. You know, and th this would be a tragedy, right? You know, this is like you know the classic Shakespearean tragedy. Just imagine that your hero Satoshi Nakamoto invents Bitcoin and then loses his car keys. You know, and so no one will ever believe you. You know, it's like. <laughs> you know, that's like a Greek tragedy or something. It's, you know, that could be happening right now, right? So you mentioned the foundation, and this is kind of a non sequitur, but have you heard of the book series, The Three-Body Problem? I this haven't. is written by a, a Chinese author. It was, it was, uh, it became a phenomena in China, and then it was translated into English. And I'm halfway through the second book called The Dark Forest, but it is like Isaac Asimov slammed into Tom Clancy and you have this like magical thing that comes out of it. They even make references to Selden crises and, and, ah. uh, and the, uh, the foundation. But the reason I bring this up is um, in the second book, they put forward a, um, a fascinating premise. And it is essentially, without going into all the details, that they choose four human beings where whatever they decide to do, everyone thinks that um, it is a plan that they can't tell anybody about, that it's all about deception. And so these characters end up, you're, you're watching the characters lose their mind because everyone in society thinks whatever they're doing is the most clever thing that, that you know, uh. wins this war. And they end up losing their minds because no one believes anything at all that they say. And it's kind of like what you're describing with yeah. the uh, imagine having created something, losing it, and then not being able to prove it. And you've created something that could be, you know, not could be, already is a world-changing technology. Yeah. I mean, so that was a big you know, question because, you know, Bitcoin first split into Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash in 2017. And that was over the choice of the block size debate. And then later... Bitcoin Cash broke into Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV, which was, you know, basically backed by this Craig Wright guy. And so for a time, it was like really important, like, you know, we is Craig Satoshi, because if he is, maybe you can make a lot of money, right? That, that was basically it. Like, and so that's kind of when I, I did this research. And, um, but yeah, just coming back from it is that, that one idea that, well, maybe he's telling the truth and that no one will ever know, you know? It's so the poetic. core question comes down, like, and I don't have a way around this, this discussion. And there's kind of some obvious paths that people go on when people are like, all right, but what is Bitcoin backed by? Why, why is it that it has value? 
And you get into this discussion and it becomes ideologically instantly. And even me, even my belief that Bitcoin does have value becomes ideological. How do you, how do you swim I, through these waters? I'm so happy you asked this question because this, this is the most important question. Um, and it's also like when I talked to my father, um, you know, he was born in 1949, um, you know, pretty, pretty atypical boomer. Um, that's like his first thing, you know, well, it's not backed, you know, as if like that makes any sense, you know, backed, um, you know, what is it backed by? Like, well, but so mo most of them think, you know, or a lot of people are accustomed to the idea that the U.S. dollar is backed by gold, that we have, you know, Fort Knox has all this gold in it. Um, and, you know, we, that's actually false. Like, you know, a lot, most people, I feel like most people know that now. Um, but so the question is, what is it backed by is actually a very interesting question. And how I would answer it is, would be to his, use history. Um, because the oldest anthropological evidence that we have of civilization, like basically ancient Sumeria, um, you know, they had money, right? And their, their system was based off of the silver shekel. Um, and those cuneiform tablets that were written on were basically all contracts um, denominated um, in, in shekels or in barley or in whatever, which was all also had an exchange rate with shekels. And so what we find on very early on is that money, you know, wasn't really ever a thing. Is that even though it was the silver shekel, that was just the accounting unit that the temple bureaucrats used to t keep track of all their resources. People weren't paying one another in silver shekels, you, really. That was just the inch, right? It was a measuring tool. And so what was that backed by, right? It wasn't a real, it wasn't even a physical object in, in most cases. It was backed by the government, right? It was backed by the temple, by, by the gods themselves, right? Um, basically and, saying that if you, if you had a shekel, then you could exchange it in for this amount of barley or wheat or whatever, but that in, in effect, it is only worth whatever somebody will give you something in exchange for it. Is that what you're saying? Well, something, I mean, that's always true that something's only worth what someone will give you in exchange for when I, but the, but the question is what is backed by? And, and a lot of people, you know, want to say, well, is the U S dollar, it's backed by gold, right? The answer is an object right? The thing that backs it is an object, right? But in, in true history, it's never an object. It's always an entity. It's always an organization or a government, right? Because you cannot trust an object. It's not a person. You, know, it can't, you cannot trust it, right? It needs to be an, a, a political authority, right? And that when you go back to the oldest history, money has always come from the political authority. And it's only recently until Adam Smith's time, 1789, he publishes The Wealth of Nations, or 1776, he publishes The Wealth of Nations. Um, and only then does he say, no, no, markets are separate from government. They evolve separately. And, you know, that's why he says governments should keep their hands off the economy and hands off those things. That the economy and the market came first and that's why we're allowed to have society. But when you actually look at the historical record, it's the other way around. You only really get economies after you have big, strong states that people can trust, that can enforce property rights and laws and, and money, right? 
Well, so um, now you've just opened up a whole nother uh, element of the blockchain and the concept of property ownership, <laughs> which is like the one of the mind bending parts. So if you if you put aside the currency part of this, and then you just say uh, a, t a term that gets tossed around all the time, smart contracts. Oh, what yeah. is it that the blockchain allows you to do regarding property? And like, and start from the beginning, because I actually don't know this very well. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it, the, the property on the blockchain is just all based off of the, the hashing um, algorithms, because, you know, um, it's all based off of public-private encryption, um, which basically the idea is that there's something called a hash algorithm. Um, and in Bitcoin's case, it's, it's called SHA-256. It stands for Secure Hashing Algorithm 256 Bit. Um, and just interesting side note happens that SHA-256 was open sourced, was developed by the NSA and open sourced for patent. They, they uploaded it to the patent office. Anybody can use SHA-256. And, and ultimately, Satoshi Nakamoto, who nobody knows who he is, incorporated it into Bitcoin. Just saying. Um, <laughs> but, um, so the hashing algorithm is something that scrambles an input. You take an input, you put it through this algorithm, it scrambles it up and comes out the other side. So unrecognizable that you can't put it back. I cannot shove it back through and get out what I put in. Right. And so that is ownership on the blockchain is that everything on the blockchain is something that's been filtered through a hash. It's called your public key. This is the one everyone can see. There's your private password, and then it goes through SHA-256, and then it becomes this number. And everyone can see this number. Everyone, but, um, and so the beauty of it is, is that basically, if I give my private number to, to the Bitcoin software, it will produce this, this output number every time, right? And that's how you can own it, right? You can own something because you're the only one who has the password. <laughs> that's, that's all you can do, right? Is anything that, you know, you can, you know, create a password protect on your property, basically, um, is what you can do with property. Uh, and so, like, in my, my understanding of it is once you, uh, you can put things in that public so at this number, I'm going to upload a file to it and I'm going to make mm -hmm. it so nobody can go take that file down. Doesn't matter. You could be yeah. a government, you could be somebody that really doesn't want it. Um, and it is a secure way to store digital information in a way that people don't often think about. Like, you know, right now at my house, in, in order for me to say that I own it, I have to go register it with the county. And then the county mm -hmm. holds the title. And then that title says, yes, Vance is the owner. He paid this much for it. This is what he pays in taxes. This is when people have put like a lien against it. Mm -hmm. And But if that building burns down or the data services uh, go down or a new government comes in and wipes it out, then that that's erasable. But what mm -hmm. people would say about the blockchain is, doesn't matter what happens. As long as the blockchain stays secure worldwide, then there's no way to change it. It becomes immutable. So if the Venezuelan yeah. government wants to say, you don't own that house, well, the, the, you would have some form of evidence that would say something otherwise. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right in, in, in the, if the blockchain stays secure, um, then, then that's the case. And that's the real question though. You know, does, does, will the blockchain chain secure? And I mean, there have been examples where, um, say with Ethereum and, uh, and they had the famous DAO 
hack, although it wasn't really a hack. So what happened is that they, they created this big smart contract um, that existed on the blockchain, right? It's this little line of code that everyone could send money to and people sent like a you know, bunch of money to it. Um, it was like 15% of all of the Ethereum that existed was sent to this address, right? And then some hacker who was really smart read the code of it and realized that it had a bug in it, right? And so he stole a bunch of money from, from that contract, like immediately. It was like the next day. And, um, and then he came out and was like, what do you mean you want to take it back from me? Like, it was in the contract. Didn't you read the contract? Right? And so, I mean, does he have an argument, right? He's right. Like, that was in the contract. But Ethereum didn't care. All of the miners got together and they hard forked the blockchain. They literally rewound the tape. You know, if the tape has all the transactions, they just literally rewound it until before everyone sent all their money to that, to that code, right? And so, I mean, are blockchains secure? Well, they're only as secure as, you know, as you trust them to be, right? You know, well, we have like, to be careful not to do a, a sleight of hand here because we have been talking about Bitcoin, which is that's right. much more the open source, you know, very consistent, done by, put, put out, put forward. Nobody owns it. There's a group of people that collectively agree on the code and then that's how that works. But Ethereum and there are many, many, many other coins uh, is something different. And maybe it's yeah. a good time to talk about what the other systems are that are out there and how do they differ from Bitcoin? Well, so yeah, just to you know, end with Bitcoin, you know, what is Bitcoin and what isn't it, right? It's that you have this system of updating blocks and creating this chain that I can kind of see, like if anyone tries to go back and change an old previous record, it'll break the whole thing, right? So I'll be able to tell, right, if someone has tampered with it immediately, right? And so that's the beauty of Bitcoin, um, I can, you know, see if it's valid in a moment. And so we use that to keep track of this ledger for Bitcoins, right? We have this, this chain of code that we've written and we keep track of these coins. And you're like, okay, is there another thing I could keep track of besides just these coins in this blockchain, right? Like, and so that I think would be what Ethereum is, is that you say, I recognize that Bitcoin works and that it's the system that, you know, ensures that this chain has never been, been altered, but I'm only applying it to one use case, money, right? Or a ledger or balances. Now let's try to apply it to another use case. So the idea is that with Ethereum, it actually has a built-in programming language. So it has all the capabilities that Bitcoin has in the sense that the ledger capabilities, right? Um, now it does it a little differently, different hashes, different, you know, all, all types of differences. Um, but the main, main difference is that it has this programming language so that when I'm, you know, updating a block on, on Bitcoin, block updates only involved erasing this entry and writing it over here, you know, transferring of an entry. On Ethereum, when I update the chain, um, the text, like there's a little text field and when, when someone has to send a transaction, basically that, you know, on Bitcoin, it would say, this guy sends money to this guy to the tune of a hundred dollars, right? And it's that text field. Well, in Ethereum, in that text field, you can put this guy does this algorithm, you know, this gets sent to that address and gets divided by four and gets sent over to this forwarded. The point is, is that you can do anything that you could tell a computer to do. You could tell Ethereum to do. And so 
I'm not just- So what just... does that mean? So if, if you don't have any if any idea what it's possible to have a computer do, like what would be a use case? So here's, here's an example, right? Is that, let's say, um, let's say like big data analytics is a really expensive thing to do. You need, you need fast computers, right? And a lot of processing, right, needs to be done. Theoretically, I could create a smart contract that people would send data to and the smart contract would do the analytics for them, right? And then it would shoot out an output to, to somewhere that they could read, right? The idea being that where Bitcoin only does SHA-256, that is the, all the computers that run Bitcoin, they can only do one function. It's like two plus two plus two plus two plus two. That's all it can do, right? Ethereum, it could do anything. So theoretically, I could, like my telephone, I could get rid of the processor or the, the big one. Anyway, I could have like a tiny one in here. I can make it a lot smaller and I could send a, a transaction to the Ethereum blockchain, pay somebody a transaction fee to do the computations on their computer, right? So it's kind of like mixing the cloud with Bitcoin. And like, so any, all of the stuff that I'm saying, like you could make it work with Bitcoin. I could, I could hook it into Bitcoin. I would have to code another like front end or another interface that allows you to, you know, connect Bitcoin to whatever use case you're doing with Ethereum. It's all on the same platform. It's all in the same place. Um, you know, it's easier to develop and to build applications and use cases on top of it. And so here's an example. I know I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but this is important. You know, for anyone who's been paying attention for a couple of years, Bitcoin had this thing called the Lightning Network that we were all really excited about. You know, the Lightning Network was going to solve all of our problems four or five years ago. I'm sure you remember it, right? Well, because the problem is if the blocks are only updated every 10 minutes, when you go to do your original example of paying your credit card to, for buying something, you go to get a cup of coffee, you put it in there. Now you got to wait 10 minutes for that block to clear. And so, you know, you're just going to be standing there waiting in line to make sure that that ledger has that money. It's just, it was not built for speed. It was built for strength. Well, and then this, this is honestly an interesting uh, thing to discuss because so the lightning network is what's called a second layer solution. You have your first layer, which is those blocks that all the miners are keeping track of. And the second layer is people who are like, okay, since the blocks only happen every 10 minutes or because they're really expensive to do transactions in, I am going to be a guy up here. I'm not on the blockchain and you guys can, can trade with me up here and I'll like have my own little bookies where people can buy and sell each other on my little exchange privately. Right. And then when they leave my exchange, then I'll send it to the blockchain and then we'll update it. And so the point is, is that this second layer, right? Who's to say, you know, I'm trusting that guy, right? He's not, I'm not my, he's not mining, right? I'm just trusting for him to him to keep track of who owns what who. And I'm trusting him until he actually, you know, filters it through the blockchain. Um, the point is, is that, that, that lightning network thing, you know, very immediately. Me. <laughs> and, well, no, my point is that Bitcoin collapsed immediately. Bitcoin was too expensive. And that whole trustless thing, everyone was like, it's all trustless. Well, it collapsed immediately, and it, it became too um, uh, expensive to do transactions. But you're talking like about, so, so let me just clarify for people that aren't familiar with this. So what would happen is it was actually, I believe, free to add something to the blockchain. It's just that 
you got priority based on whether or not you bid for, for the spot. So, so to clarify this, I'm going to buy a cup of coffee and let's say that coffee is $3. So I go to pay that and then it's going to be 10 minutes before it's updated to the block. But actually you have all kinds of transactions that have to go one at a time, bang, 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 bang. Because mm-hmm. if, you, if you take all those actions at the same time, somebody could make claims against uh, one wallet, you know, like 15 times and, and, and get rid of all that money. So you have to put it in an order. And the way that you would prioritize your order is that you would bid for, hey, I'm willing to pay $3 or $5 yeah. or $50. And I think at one point in time, just to get a transaction it was $50 or something like yeah. that. And so if you were thinking about, oh, the value of Bitcoin is you can denominate it as a Satoshi, a 0.0000001 Bitcoin, you might be spending... 20, you might be sending somebody 20 cents, but it costs you $50 to send it. So that became a real problem. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, the, my point though, is just that it's almost like the Bitcoiners themselves were like, this system isn't going to work unless we bring someone in here to trust, right? Where they're like, the system (laughs) as it is, right, is too expensive. We need to bring someone in here to trust. And that's the second layer. That's these, these um, uh, lightning guys. And so this is why I kind of want to fundamentally get back to this, is that they're trying to hide the ball. And they're like, you're not trusting anybody. You can just trust math and computers. Oh, by the way, though, you have to trust these guys on the second layer, and they're totally unaudited, and we have no way of keeping control of them, right? It's like they're hiding the ball. Like, they're, they're trusting something. It's, it's just like the old system where you had to trust JP Morgan. It's just that the person you're trusting is differently. And do you even know who you are trusting? Like, that's the difference. With our with, you know, money, I know that I have to trust the banks. With Bitcoin, who am I trusting? Some miner somewhere? Doing something? Like, I, I don't even know. Right? I think and that's, that, that I, was <laughs> one of the biggest values of Bitcoin for me was that because money was ubiquitous, right? It was always around. It was something I'd always been a part of. There was so much of it that I just didn't understand about how the dollar works or about how the, the, the yen works. Like I just didn't understand it at all. And that's when you start uncovering things like, oh, wait a second, our, our money's not backed by gold. And oh, wait mm-hmm. a second, this is how fractional reserve banking works. And, and maybe I knew these as disparate ideas, but when you start looking at them as a whole picture, you start saying like, wait a second, money is nowhere near as simple as I think that it is. The idea of credits and debits and using credit cards and how all of this banking system works is not, it's, it's been made so simple for me that I never had to understand any aspect of it. And if that's all Bitcoin did for the world was to reveal what's kind of going on beyond the curtain, I think that that, that, that would be enough. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's huge. Uh, I, and I cannot um, stress that enough. Like, this blockchain technology, you know, I, I might sound like I'm down on it, um, but you, you know, do, I'm, fact, I, I'm I somewhat of a cynic, yeah. right? I'm somewhat of a cynic, but you know, it's not that I'm against it. It's more that I'm, I'm of the mind where, you know, th- th- there's this really good song, right? And it's been overplayed, right? It's just overplayed. But like me saying it's overplayed doesn't mean I don't like it. It just means I feel like people like it too much than they should, right? <laughs> and that's how kind of how I feel with, with these cryptos is that, I mean, I like it, but like you guys are a little too stoked on it. Like, you know, then it's justified, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, and that kind of goes back to that Dunning-Kruger idea we were talking about before of like when you first learn about something and you're like, oh, Absolutely. this is so fascinating. 
But when you get down into the weeds and you start to actually have to look at the flaws or look at the challenges that it has to overcome, then all of a sudden you start being like, I should probably slow my roll. And I'm probably <laughs> more guilty of that than, than anybody else. Because at some point I just have to let go of my, all right, not, I don't have to, I chose to just let go of, I don't know how this works, but I am going to lay a long bet on it. And that long mm -hmm. bet is, you know, it's, if I were to sell out right now, it would have paid, paid out many times over, but I consider that money gone, right? Yeah. Like to, to me, that's not even a part of my portfolio that I actively manage. I don't include it in, in the overall picture because I just want to let that thing ride. And, uh, and, and the lessons that I learned off of it have already paid themselves. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, on the one hand, that's a wise move, you know, to never touch it. Cause then like your emotions can't get in the way. But then on the other hand, like that's also the worst thing you can do, right? Is to, <laughs> is to just hold it no matter what, right? Cause you know, that, you know, when you should, if you ever should sell it, then you'll, you're guaranteed to not, right? To miss it. Um, and I mean, that meme, that hodl meme, like that's a perfect example of this silly, this silly idea where like, I'm such a hardcore believer, I'm never gonna sell, you know? It's basically being like, I'm inflexible. I don't update my beliefs when I get new information. I'm a child, right? <laughs> it's, um, but really what it was is that all these people in the Bitcoin industry had a financial interest in pumping the price. And therefore, they, so they created this meme that you know, made every, encouraged everyone to hold and to not sell, right? And you know, just like how when the market crashes, we ban short selling, you know, same, same type of thing. Well, I mean, I would say in my defense, <laughs> I, I figured out that like the amount of money I put into it, I've yeah, already defense, received it back. And yeah. like now if it does make, it's like, it's like playing with house money at this point. Absolutely. Um, um, so yeah, in your case, it's, it's a little different, but uh, you know, you still hope, you hope. Um, so let, let me ask you this, where do you think cryptocurrency goes by, let's say 2025? Where, where is it in society and, and how do you think it plays out? So, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, um, I mean, I think we're going to have a central bank digital currency at some point. Um, if, if you're just paying attention to the journals and just the publications by, by the central banks and, um, you know, everyone's talking about it. Everybody wants it. Um, these, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum, basically, you know, they were like the, the dry run test. Um, and now that can sound extremely cynical when we realize that we do not know who created them. Right. <laughs> and I'm calling it a, a test. Right. It makes it sound like it was intentional, but you know, maybe it wasn't. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, you're going to have a digital currency and here's why, right? It's that everything is, is, you know, the government is with big data, you know, big data is going to change the way society is governed. Now that we have the potential to have the internet of things and have sensors everywhere informing us on things and efficiencies, everything. And so with blockchain, um, one of the big benefits of it is that I can, you know, I can monitor every transaction, right? So I'm, say the government makes a central bank digital currency. They're called treasury dollars or something. And everyone has to use them. You have to, right? It's illegal to not use them. 
so that if you get caught transacting with other things, you get fined, you get, you get you know, jail time, something like that. Um, if that's the case, if everyone uses them, doesn't that change everything? Oh yeah, right? there's no more the guy that mows my lawn for, for me throwing him some cash under, under the well, table. Or, or, or even or... politics, right? It's fundraising in politics. It's you know, everything, right? Once everyone can see every, what's in everyone's wallet, right? That is revolutionary, right? You can no longer you know, pretend that these differences in wealth don't exist. You can no longer pretend that you know, this, this particular company isn't you know, dealing with, with bad guys. I can see the trail. You know, I can see that they're transacting with bad actors or I can see that they're not paying their taxes over here or you know, that they're doing this or that. Like if you have everything transparent, and this means there's no privacy, right? In this, in this world, there's no financial privacy at all. But my question to you is, Vance, now that we have the capability to get rid of financial privacy, what do you think? Should we? I mean, you know, you know me very well. Like I, I am of, I mean, of the mind of, of liberty first and then and be very, very careful what liberty you give up because I don't even think the government might, would set out necessarily to be like, hey, we're going to go ahead and do this so that way we can track every single transaction. At the but same once time, you have though, that power, you wouldn't be able to resist it. But at the same time, I can use it against the government as well. I can say every dollar the government spends has to be on this blockchain. Where are you spending your money? Where are my tax dollars going, right? Like, and so I'm, I'm saying that you're right, right? I used to think like you, you know, where I would say, look, you know, privacy is really important and I'm, cause I'm afraid, right? I feel like the privacy argument is, it comes from fear. It's right. Why do you want privacy? It's not that, you know, I don't want people to know what I'm doing. It's just that I don't want them to like, you know, if they're hostile to me or if they would use what I'm doing against me, right? That's what I want to avoid. That's the point of the privacy, right? Um, and so I understand that. That's looking at like the potential bad things. You know, I want privacy to stop potential bad things. But then when you really start to think about it, you're like, well, what about all these good things? You know, and then the, you can't embezzle money anymore. And, you know, I can see where they're spending our money. And, you know, um, the IRS, you know, I'll be able to write a smart contract that'll do your taxes for you, right? Wow. And you know, suddenly all these benefits. I mean, I see what you're saying, but like for me, privacy is, is, uh, is sacrosanct, right? Like there are within your circle of, of inside of your mind, then inside of your, your primary relationships, your spouse, your children, then like you have spheres where you can go further and further out. And the, the more that you allow other people to see inside of those spheres, then there's something about the individual that gets degraded. And I think it's more than just what is beneficial or easy. I think there's a degradation of the individual that comes in that regard and not worth probably any of the benefits that, that would come, come from that. Potentially. Um, this is a, so this is a thing I've been thinking about a lot, obviously. And, and, and like the answer to the, why I started talking about this was the question, you know, what do you think is going to happen with this, with this blockchain technology and stuff? And at the end of the day, I think this is the main thing, you know, there are all these smart contracts and this and that, and the other, but we've had that type of stuff for a long time, like contracts or like things like that. The only, the real difference, right, is the transparency. Um, and, you know, that's really what it's going to be. It's that we're going to have everything we used to have plus this potential for transparency. And, you know, there are people who don't want this, you know, when the CIA 
you know, is, is, you know, trying to send money to some, you know, dissident somewhere, you know, because it's been approved at the highest levels of government, but, you know, never made it out to Congress. Congress never passed some bill that said requisition money for the, you know, Nicaraguans or whatever it was. You know, the CIA, they want to be able to make private transactions. You know, that's the type of thing like that, your ability to do that, to clandestinely fund someone, you know, that's gone, right? And so at the same time, you know, the powers that be, you know, they may want to maintain the privacy as well, right? Like, let's not pretend that, you know, they want, you know, to, to have transparency for everyone. You know, there's, there's, there will always be some room for cash, right? Anonymous cash. I remember um, a, a long time ago, you had told me something that blew my mind, and I actually didn't believe you for a while, which was that at one point in time, the government outlawed the ownership of gold. Okay. And it, it, it like blew my mind because then I was like, wait a second, because then that brings up all these weird things. Like if you are in possession of gold that you owned while it was illegal to own it, is it now illegal to own that gold? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a, that's a mind blower. I, that's what I was talking to my students, uh, just a couple weeks ago. I was like, I know, you know, everybody thinks that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and, you know, that the, the president is a tyrant and, you know, you know, executive power is out of control, but like, you know, FDR literally robbed every one of their gold. <laughs> Like, you know, like, let's not forget So that. tell the story, because yeah. I don't know it all that well. I just yeah. remember being like, oh, no, that really did happen. Well, so this is a, this is a big story, but, it, you know, it's the election in 1932, and FDR wins. Um, but back then, inauguration and, um, like, when they were sworn in was different. It, it wasn't, it was like three months staggered. I think they became president in, like, March. And so there was, like, six or seven months there where... Um, everyone knew, or there were several months there where everyone knew FDR was going was to be president, but they didn't know what his position was on gold. And so this is 1932. Um, Great Britain has gone off the gold standard. Um, and it's like the first, you know, this is like a major problem. You know, we had the gold standard before World War I, um, and then they all went off the gold standard since they couldn't, you know, they didn't have enough money to back it all in gold. And then so England goes back on the gold standard and they, they're able to keep it together for a little while. But the fact of the matter is, is that they actually went back to the standard at a parity, at a value for gold that was much too high because that was before the war. You know, billions of people were dead, like assets, all the value of the economy blown up, right? You know, it wasn't as valuable as it was before. Um, so long story short, England goes off gold. And this is the biggest deal, right? And then the whole world is, you know, in the throes of this Great Depression. And the only country in the world whose economy is expanding in 1933 is Great Britain because they're the only one who's not on the gold standard, right? They're inflating and printing money and their, their uh, currency is getting weaker. So their exports are going up. And so exports are going up. There's more employment, you know, booming. England has actually recovered from the Depression, right? And basically FDR's policy, it's on everybody's lips, is what will FDR do? Is he going to, you know, save the gold standard or will he trash it for his own benefit, right? In order to lower his currency, increase his exports, increase his employment, his political prospects, right? And so he, he, he refuses to, to say what he'll do. He, he won't say um, what his plans are on the gold standard. So everyone starts getting scared, right? And, and a lot of British 
who, you know, they're, they're off the gold standard. A lot of money that's in, in, invested in New York, it starts to run, right? Because it thinks that the USA is, is going to devalue. And so you get all this gold, billions of dollars, flowing out through New York and draining out of America, out of the country, because it's anticipating this. Um, and then so there's this big bank run, and this is a dramatic story, which is why I'm going to go into it. It's kind of interesting. There's this big, you know, banking panic in Michigan. All the banks have to shut down in Michigan, and, you know, all, all the, um, it's spreading to different states, and these governors are emergency, you know, shutting down all their banks and having bank holidays, and they're on the phone with FDR, um, and, um, Herbert Hoover is like, you know, FDR, you, you've got to make a joint statement with me that we're going to prop up the economy um, together. And FDR is like, you know, screw you, guy. Like, if, if you're not willing to do it yourself um, and make the announcement yourself because you don't want to eat it, you don't want to be politically responsible for it, right? if you're not willing to do it yourself, I'll wait until you're not president and then I'll take all the credit. And that's exactly what he did. And so he doesn't say what his position is on the gold standard. He becomes president. And then the first thing he does is he closes all the banks in the country. And while that's going on, that he passes the, um, was it the Thomas Amendment, I think is what it's called. And that is what makes it illegal for all private citizens to own gold. Now, why did he do that, right? I was just, I started off with all the gold was flowing out of the system and back to England because it was fearing the devaluation. And so a lot of the gold, it wasn't all going to England. Some of it was going to mattresses, right? People, if you thought FDR was going to devalue the gold by 35%, you would take your gold and put it in your mattress too. And so FDR knew that, right? That was people's last veto, right? If you did not approve of what the financial system was doing as a citizen, you could take your gold out, right? That was your veto. And the less gold they had, the less loans they could make, damn it, right? That was how the system worked. And so he said, no more vetoes, right? The people aren't allowed to have gold anymore, right? And boom, he, okay, you're allowed to have some jewelry and you're allowed to have like rare old coins. But like any bullion, um, you know, got, got bought by the government at the price of, you know, $20.67 uh, an ounce. And then like six months later, he raises the price. Um, now, I mean, they, they did it in steps, you know, because they were buying down the open market. But at the end of all the buying on the open market, it gets to $35 an ounce. And so the difference was from 2067 to $35. So they made $14 off of every ounce of gold in the country, right? Because they bought them all and then sold them back. And then where did they take that money? Because this, this, this is still with us today. And whenever I tell the story about the seizing of the gold, it has to end with the Exchange Stabilization Fund. It's called the ESF. You can look it up on Wikipedia. FDR took all that money that he made devaluing gold and he put it all in an account kept by the Treasury. And so he basically created a massive slush fund, right? That was, you know, at the time it was like $250 billion, $200 billion um, in today's money at the time. Um, and that fund has been used by the Treasury to, say, bail out Mexico. It happened in the 90s. Bob Rubin, a big Wall Streeter, head trader at Goldman Sachs, became Treasury Secretary. And as soon as he was Treasury Secretary, he used that money to bail out Mexico with nobody's approval, right? There, it, Congress didn't pass some bill that said the United States was going to bail out Mexico. Bob Rubin just had this slush fund, right? 
And so this is the point, the point of the story is that isn't this interesting how this long thing from, from the ancient past, you know, when FDR took everyone's gold, it's still affecting us today. You know, your power, your representation in what's going on in government, right, has been diminished from, from this, this movement. So interesting story. Reed, you never disappoint in the storytelling <laughs> department. And I think the best part about this is if anybody hung all the way through the podcast and they got <laughs> to this story, they know that you like they should know that you could do this for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> so what I would love to do is just say, let's have you on the podcast again. Let's not wait so long. This was long overdue. I would love to have you on again. We can talk about all your crazy innovations. But now we've gotten the core base you know, of cryptocurrencies yeah. down and now we can go and have some fun on your, uh, on your wild stories. And, uh, and thank you, man, so much for coming on. Thank you. It's great. Great to talk. Uh, can't, uh, you know, I'm fired up. I want to keep going, but you know, I'll, uh, I'll have to pen some things down and excitement things to talk about next time. We'll do it again. Let's just do it in a couple of weeks. All right.